Amen. Amen. Grab a seat and grab a Bible. And open up to Luke 23. You know, this is not a, a traditional um, passage for this Sunday, for Palm Sunday, but um, I'm glad we're here on this Palm Sunday. We're going to kind of crawl through this passage, kind of phrase by phrase a little bit and take our time doing it. We are going to be thinking about the, the trials of Jesus before Pilate and before Herod, and you're going to notice that the crowd um, in today's story, in today's verses, is going to stand in stark contrast to the crowd that we think about as we celebrate Palm Sunday, that it's tempting to talk about the crowd in Jerusalem turning, that on Palm Sunday, they're walking in, or he's walking in, and they are singing Hosanna, Hosanna, and then on a, less than a full week later, they are in Pilate's court, and the crowd is shouting, crucify him, crucify him. One, but while it's tempting to think about the same group of people turning against Jesus, probably more precisely, what happened is there were two groups of people in Jerusalem. There were those that are following Jesus in. And there are the common people with whom Jesus' message was very popular. Jesus was somebody that spoke to common people and professed the nearness of the kingdom. And they, many of them followed him. But then there were those church leaders, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes that Jesus was a threat to. And in fact, we have seen both of these groups, crowds where Jesus is teaching the crowd, and then a series in the last couple chapters, starting in like, I don't know, chapter 19, 20, 21, where there were a series of conflicts, a series of, of Jesus versus the scribes, Jesus versus being challenged by these religious leaders. It's even as you think about the, the time, you know, these religious leaders and the Sanhedrin, the council in Jerusalem, are the power brokers of the day, and also kind of chicken. Jesus was, you remember at Jesus' arrest, he said, hey, I was preaching all week in the temple courts, could have come and got me at any time, but no, it's in the middle of the night on a holiday that they're going to come and arrest him and begin what is an illegal trial, uh, several illegal trials that begin, don't, um, don't end, but begin under the cloak, literally under the cloak of darkness, where probably most of the people who were shouting Hosanna are with their families and continuing to celebrate the Passover. I want to talk about, so I, I want you to keep all of that imagery of Palm Sunday in your head as we talk about these trials of Jesus. In fact, I'd like to come back to them um, in a, you know, 25 minutes or so, because last week we, we looked at how the, the, the main idea in Luke, the, the, the question that Luke is always revolving around, just like the rest of the Gospels, is always, who is Jesus? Like, until you've decided, until you've really made profession of who Jesus is, you can't take step two. But step two is also important, and that is the question at the heart of our time today, and that's, what should we do with Jesus? That's a good idea. 
What should you, what are we doing with the person of Jesus of Nazareth? It's not just who do you say I am, although it has to start there, but then it continues to this next step, this next part of our journey, where once we know who Jesus is, we have to decide what to do with him. Is Jesus the Messiah? Is Jesus God? Is Jesus Savior of the world? Great. How is that changing your life? Now what do we do? I remember, have you had life-changing, have you had ideas that, that just started as ideas started at knowledge but ended up changing everything in your life? I, I remember I was telling some of this story yesterday to some of the guys at the men's breakfast, which you should totally come to, um, but, uh, but I met, uh, when I went on my first date with Tiffany, I literally went home and told my roommate I just went on the date with the girl I was going to marry. And... And then, but so that was like holding up a mirror to me. Actually, our second date, I had to cancel because I forgot that I had a junior high uh, ski, or not ski, a junior high skate event planned. That's how you know that you're dating a youth pastor, when he forgot that there was a junior high event and made a plan to hang out. So, but we ha I had to cancel it, and she said, well, why don't I just come to the junior high thing? And I was like, oh my gosh. And so... Like in that first week, meeting Tiffany and then like being on one day with Tiffany and then seeing her like naturally do ministry, I was like, oh my gosh. So it wasn't only exciting that I was like, I know something now. Like, oh, this is, she is special. She's not like anybody I've ever, like nobody likes doing junior high ministry. That's not true. Everybody likes junior high ministry. But, um, but it's, 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 you know, that's a very particular kind. And she was so naturally good at it. And I saw my whole life open up. But the problem with seeing my whole life open up is I looked at myself and went, I couldn't like be with a girl like that. Like, I think I was making $50 a week at the time. I was playing an awful lot of basketball. I was playing, I was like learning to play the guitar. Like there was nothing about me that said, this guy has a future. And so it was like this knowledge that I was like, oh my gosh, I need to change. It's one thing to acknowledge Jesus on the way into town and wave and go, yep, he's the king. It's another thing to go, oh my gosh, I need to change. You know, I also remember my life changing during a guitar solo. My, my friend Eric was in a band called Sarah Laughing, just awesome band. It was, a, it was like a Christian soul band. They had trombones and trumpets and all kinds of stuff. And just great. Two great albums. If you need them, I'll send you the link. Um, just fantastic, fantastic guys. And I remember being at a show, at a Sarah Laughing show, about not too long after I had met Tiffany and decided I needed to get my act together and I should probably make something of myself and whatever. And just really trying to decide like, what should I, what should I do? Like, I, I was starting to get the hint that maybe professional baseball wasn't going to work out. And so, and, and neither was professional tennis, which I was actually a little better at, but not, not anywhere enough to go, this is my life. And so I was starting to go, oh my gosh, like, I've only been playing guitar a little bit, but I don't think that's going to do it either. Like, what is it? What, what should I do? You know, and really understanding, like really with deep uh, my personality was like deeply rooted in the culture, in 
the politics of the day and in philosophy and in, you know, whatever deep conversations were happening and with all of the brilliant, you know, 20-year-olds. And I uh, didn't mean that pejoratively. So it's, I've never had deep thoughts since I was about 20 years old. Um, but, um, but, but of, you know, around Garden Grove in like 1993, like that was like kind of my whole thing. And I remember really struggling with, should I give my whole life to Jesus or not? Do you know what I'm talking about? Really struggling with, can I be whatever I decide to be and then be a Christian or do I have to? And I look back on it now and I go, I was wrestling with a call to ministry, but I just couldn't articulate it like that then. And I was really wrestling with like, well, you know, what do, I, what do I do? And I remember in the middle of that Sarah Lat, nothing special. I mean, I'm sure it was a great solo because Eric was a fantastic guitar player. But it wasn't like the notes he played. It wasn't. It was just that I was in a state of, what do I do with Jesus? Can he be a side project in my life? Or do I have to give everything? Do I have to like, do I have to say yes to some things that, that don't make any sense to any of my friends? And I hope they make sense to Tiffany. So the, I just have to give everything to him and just make him my king. And I can't articulate what I, it's not like, and then God spoketh unto me and that I saideth unto him. It wasn't like that, but I can tell you my heart broke. And it was another moment where I thought, oh no, Jesus is the king. What do I do? I'd like to talk about our palm branches, and I'd like to talk about our coats. But we'll get to that later. First, this is going to be the story of gavels. We're going to see the story today of Herod and Pilate with a gavel in their hand going, what to do with Jesus? Jesus is before me and I'm the judge. How do I render judgment against Jesus. And I'd like to talk about the different ways that they really proclaim Jesus' innocence. But I want to circle back and look at Palm Sunday too, and I want to think about not only did Herod have a gavel in his hand, and not only did Pilate have a gavel in his hand, but so do you. We each have been presented Jesus. We each have the opportunity to go. I'm the judge of my life. What am I going to do with Jesus? So let's start in verse 6 of Luke 23. Are you there? We'll go slow. We'll, I'll interrupt myself a lot. When Pilate heard this, oh, so verse 5 um, uh, the, the crowd is trying to, you know, they're, they're thinking of stuff that might make Pilate mad so he'll, uh, so he'll condemn Jesus. And they go, this guy has been lying to people from Galilee all the way down to this day to right here. And, the, and Pilate, uh, something perked up. And so verse 6 says, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. Pilate thinks that his problem is solved. As soon as he uses the words, hears the word Galilee, he goes, that is great. That is not my problem. First of all, if Jesus is a Galilean, that's in the sticks. That is, Pilate thinks that this whole thing is beneath him. He should be in Rome. To be in the outskirts of the Roman kingdom here in Jerusalem, I don't know what he did, but it wasn't good to get that assignment. 
And so this whole, even Jerusalem is beneath him. So he hears the word Galilee and he goes, this is not my problem. Verse seven, and then he learned, uh, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. Not only one, Jesus is a Galilean, that's out in the sticks. That's like up by Nazareth. Remember what the Bible says about Nazareth? Did anything good ever come from Nazareth? Not only that, but Pilate knows a little uh, Hebrew geography, and he goes, that is up, okay. So just west of the Sea of Galilee, that's Herod Antipas's uh, region. Herod Antipas was uh, the son of Herod the Great. So Herod the Great in Luke 2 kills all the babies, sends Jesus' family back into Egypt. That is Herod the Great. This is his son, who was one of four brothers, tetrarchs, who were given kind of a quarter of the kingdom. So his little quarter, you can tell how important he was, uh, Herod Antipas. He's way up by Galilee to the west of there, and then down, you go down to the Dead Sea and east of there. So he's got this unruly. He doesn't care. This, he, he has no character of his own anyway, but that's his jurisdiction. So Pilate hears this and goes, man, Jesus isn't my problem. It could very well be that there are those in our world that render the same verdict, that Jesus just isn't my problem. That's for somebody else. I'm not a church-going person. This hasn't been my thing. So not only is Herod, uh, not only is, is, is Jesus a Galilean, but also that makes Jesus Herod's problem. But not only that, Herod is in town. Herod just happens to be in Jerusalem right now. This is good news for Pilate. So what does Pilate do with Jesus? He looks at Jesus and says, Jesus doesn't have anything to do with me. Man, I don't think that's an uncommon judgment in our day. That people, my other people, not us for sure, might look at Jesus and go, that has nothing to do with me. And you know, it could be that there's people that look at Jesus totally and go, well, I wasn't raised in church. That's not my thing. I'm not religious. Jesus doesn't have anything to do with me. It could also be that there's Christians that go, this part of my life is not for Jesus. I hear the, the joke, like, I've said the joke, like, I got all angry, and so I left Jesus in the car, and I went to go talk to that guy. You know what I'm talking about? You hear people talk like that. It could be that even us good Christians fall victim to, hey, th in this part of my life, Jesus has nothing to do with it. What are you doing with Jesus? Is he a side project? Or is he your king? So, now we get to spend some time with Herod Antipas. Verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him. Well, how could that be? Well, this has everything to do with John the Baptist. Are you ready for a good story? You remember this story. John the Baptist was preaching in Herod Antipas's region. And he got arrested because Herod's wife, Herodias, didn't like John the Baptist. Well, here's the story behind that. John had been preaching against Herod's marriage to Herodias because Herod had gotten divorced so he could marry Herodias. And uh, John the Baptist thought that was a bad idea. 
And also, Herodias used to be married to Herod's brother. This divorce, I mean, there's been painful divorces. This divorce literally started a war. So, Herod divorced a wife, started a war, married his brother's wife. We're against that. And John the Baptist said, I don't think that's a good idea. So, Herod threw him in prison. But while he was imprisoned by Herod, Herod liked John. And they and it and you go back in, in the early parts of the gospels and you read the story and, and Herod like was fascinated by John. And so while he, he's got John in prison, he kind of likes having John in prison because they used to talk and he liked him. He he found him to be wise. And let me just tell you this bonkers idea. Maybe there was a time when Herod was close to repentance. Maybe there had been a time when Herod had been in conversation with John and he recognized the life-giving words coming out of John. The kingdom of God is near. We should repent and return to God. But his heart remained hard. His life was complicated and he never did repent. And here's what happens frequently when you don't repent is you put it off, you put it off, and then bad things happen. And one day during a celebration, bad things happen. So you can see how this is working out. Herod has got John in prison, but he likes John. He's learning from John. In fact, maybe there's even a moment there where he might even be close to repenting and changing his ways. But he's married to Herodias, who hates John's guts. And Herodias has a daughter who is Herod's stepdaughter. And during some lust-filled, drunken celebration, stepdaughter went in and danced for Herod and all of his friends. And Herod, in the middle of his drunken revelry, was like, that was awesome. I'll give you whatever you want, even up to half the kingdom. So his stepdaughter went back to mom. And so this is what Herod just said. He said, he'll give me whatever I want, except up to half the kingdom. So Herodias said, tell him to kill John. I want John's head on a platter. And Herod is grieved. And Herod is superstitious. And there's a rumor that has started that Jesus is actually John the Baptist come back to life. So I think Luke has already told that story earlier in his gospel, and now he simply says Herod was excited to see Jesus. He'd been wanting to see him for a long time. And then we're also told what Herod's motives were a little bit because he had heard about him, obviously from John, and he was hoping to see some signs done by him. Is that good or bad? He wanted to see some signs done by him. You know, personally, I was like, what if it's, I was like, you know, as you're going through it, studying during the week, I was like, what if it stopped right there? What if that's all it said? He wanted to see some signs. I thought, you know, I don't really know if that's good or bad yet. Jesus does. Jesus reads the room, reads Herod's heart. But I can't really tell. Is his motivation, all right, Jesus, are you really the one? Or is, is, is his motivation selfish that Jesus might do something for him? Well, apparently Jesus knows that this isn't something like Nicodemus coming to Jesus with genuine questions. This isn't like Zacchaeus climbing the tree to get a glimpse of Jesus. 
No, rather, this is more like a power move. Herod, in all of his regalia, (coughs) questioning Jesus for a long time. Dance for me. See, Jesus doesn't turn away. We could could have some stuff to learn um, from this. Jesus doesn't turn away seekers, but Jesus has nothing for people in the pursuit of self. So he questioned him at some length, but he, meaning Jesus, made no answer. Man, sometimes I wish more Christians acted like that. We're being accused and people are saying things and have you seen the internet? And Jesus just made no answer. There's some wisdom there. Verse 10, the chief priests and scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. Man, now we have to import that line that is in the, the, the end of the chapter on Jesus' arrest that said, this is your day and the, the forces of evil. Every time we see these guys, this is not only reference to them, it's reference to the forces of evil. They are being, they are being animated by the forces of evil. And they stand by, vehemently accusing him. And you know, I wonder if I was in that room and Herod's got the gavel and he's like, well, what do I do with Jesus? And, and, and he's got his, this history of his own selfishness, this history of his own rebellion. He's also got all these voices yelling at him, kill him, get rid of him. He's bad. Man, is this not similar to what a common person who's asking the question, what do I do with Jesus? might have to go through. The forces of darkness are still sending accusing voices in the hearts of people, in the ears of people. So Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. All right, now we know where Herod's motives are. Jesus knew this the whole time. Herod and his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Man, that changed quickly, didn't it? From, oh, I've been looking forward to see him. I'm going to ask him a bunch of questions to just mocking him. And let me tell you, if you're pursuing Jesus for selfish reasons, and I even like struggle to say that because you should pursue Jesus for selfish reasons, but those selfish reasons should be, you're a sinner and lost and need redemption. Need re- As you repent, you need forgiveness. But if you are pursuing Jesus just so you have more money in your pocket, more popularity, so you do the Jesus magic trick thing, man, it's going to lead to frustration. You're going to be disappointed in Jesus. He's not going to do that. So Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him, then arraying him in splendid clothing, sent him back to Pilate. So, where does the gavel land with Herod? What does Herod do? If Pilate said, he's not my problem, Herod said, I'm going to do away with Jesus because he won't make me feel better. I don't know if Jesus wanted... I don't know if Herod wanted Jesus to say, don't worry about that thing with John. I don't know if he wanted an explanation. I don't know what it was. But whatever the questions were, went unanswered. And he sent him back to Pilate. And then Luke gives this, are you still with me in verse 12? Luke gives this little historical narrative. 
And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other to that very day, for before this, they had been at enmity with each other. I wonder if people reading this just maybe 25 or 30 years after the events would go, oh, because Herod and Rome get along pretty good now. This is when that happened. Man, if you are looking to figure out where the gavel's going to fall, and you have yourself as the judge, this is how it's going to work out. Right now, it's going to get worse. But right now, Herod and Pilate are just in a game of pass the gavel. Well, I can't find any fault in him, but i got to get rid of him too. Then our second time with Pilate. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers. You're Bible students, you're, you're Lucan scholars at this point. We know these guys. The chief priests and rulers, we know who they are and the people. These are the crucified crowd. And he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to me. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Innocent. One declaration of innocence. Look, I wish I was, I wish I was better with words and could say this more accurately and articulately, but in your heart, declaring Jesus innocent is not enough. We do not get saved by looking at Jesus and going, yep, yep, I, I, I think he's right. There's something else. So, nothing deserving of him has been, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. So look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, so Pilate said, go on your merry way, Jesus. No. It says, I will therefore punish and release him. And you see the abuse of power. Do you also see some compromise? What's Pilate got to do? Pilate has to do something to shut the crowd up. So he says, I'll tell you what, I'll beat him. I'll punish him, and then I'm going to release him. Man, I don't know what compromise looks like in your life, but let Pilate teach you. Whether we're looking at, you know, David and his great sin and all the little compromise that led to that. Whether we talk about modern day addictions and, and, and you know, uh, bad relationships that are one compromise at a time, whether um, we're looking at, you know, the way the scriptures tell us not to hesitate between two opinions, not one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom of God. We just cannot be people of compromise. We have to do the right thing, even if it's going to cost us. There would have been a riot. Pilate would have been a one on the cross. I don't know what would have happened if Pilate would have just said, no, I'm actually going to follow Jesus. I don't know what would have happened. But it's one compromise at a time. Maybe I'll try getting rid of him. I'll send him to Herod. That didn't work. Okay. Maybe I'll beat him and release him. See if that's fine. 18. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, the man who had been thrown into 
uh, prison for an insurrection starting, uh, started in the city and for murder. An insurrection, well, that's what Jesus is being charged with. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. Innocent. Two times. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Why are they shouting crucify? I'm not a psychologist, but my daughter's in her first year of a master's program in psychology, so I'm basically qualified. We like to pretend that this is not true, but our desires trump our logic. I, I, read, a, I read a book whose title I can't remember the name of a few years ago, and I've, I've told you this before. It, it started with a chapter about the elephant and the rider, and um, the idea was, and this is not biblical, take it for what you want, but the idea was that all of us... Uh, are in control of our lives like a rider on top of an elephant. And that rider can, and the rider is your intellect and the, uh, the elephant is your, your heart, your emotional center, your desires. And you can make, anybody who's ever tried to, you know, stop eating chili dogs and start eating broccoli knows how this goes. For a little while, the, the rider can make that elephant go wherever he wants. For a little while, your logic is in control. But eventually your desires, your heart, what you actually want is going to take over. If we simply believe in our heart, believe in our head that Jesus is the king, but really our desires are selfish, eventually. See, these people are yelling crucify, not because they don't see who Jesus is. They have been presented with a very accurate description of who Jesus is. He has taught in their midst. They have seen him with people. They were there as people are shouting Hosanna. They have heard the stories. Lazarus might, they might know Lazarus. They have seen Jesus conquer death. It's not a matter of they don't know who Jesus is. It's a matter of they want him dead anyway. Knowing who Jesus is, it has to start there. But we have to be people who fully give ourselves to him. Not just who is Jesus, but what are you doing with Jesus? A third time he said to him, this is Pilate talking in verse 22. What evil has he done? I have found him, I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. Three times. But I will therefore, I will therefore, that cracks me up. He's innocent, so I'll punish him. More compromise. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. Well, of course their voices prevailed. Pilate doesn't care about Jesus. Pilate cares about Pilate. And while it's easy to make Pilate a bad guy, anybody who grew up in you know, Christian school where they said creeds 
And we, we, might, we might start that occasionally, mixing in the Nicene Creed around here. Some, it's good to be connected to the church around the world in that way. It's good to be connected to ancient things in that way. But, but the, the passage about, or the, you know, the part in the Apostles' Creed, um, uh, we believe in Jesus and who's this and that, who suffered under Pontius Pilate. We've been, like, you might have known that your whole life, who suffered under Pontius Pilate. But really, all Pontius Pilate is is a stand-in for me. When I know who Jesus is, but I want the grant way anyway. When my head, my whole life has known who Jesus is, but my heart, my gut, is pulling a different direction. And he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he, liver, he delivered uh, Jesus over to their will. Whose will? I'm no fatalist. I think every decision you make matters. And I think you have real choices in your life. But what an example of God doing exactly what God (laughs) planned on doing. Even as evil people do everything they can to get in his way. So, not only was there a gavel in Pilate's hand, not only was there a gavel in Herod's hand, not only in some sense is there a gavel in the crowd's hand, but there's a gavel in your hand and in mine too. Jesus has been brought before us. He has, uh, we've heard who He claims to be. And true, believing in our minds the truth about who Jesus is, is where it starts, but then we have to act. And there's a crowd opposed to Jesus too. And they are everywhere. And they are loud. And it's the accusation of the problem of sin. If God is good, then why do bad things happen? And it's the evidence of fallen people in the church. If God's good, then why did this pastor do this? And this seminary leader do this? And why this? And it's the, and it's the voice of, of people latching onto our own mistakes. If God is good, then how come sometimes you are mean? The voices are loud and they're accusing all the time. And at the end of the day, we have to go, what do I do with Jesus? The crowd in our time is powered by the same darkness that powered the mob in Jesus' time. The forces of darkness in heavenly places are still inspiring evil. And sometimes for us, it does look like the call to compromise, to give in to sin, to look to idolatry. The answer is power. The answer is you getting your way. To accuse, oh, the problems are those people's faults. You're the right one. You're the righteous one. So what do we do with Jesus? Well, declaring him is innocent isn't enough. You know, the palm um, was, uh, I should have I made this one look a little better. But the palm was not just something that was around that they could wave at Jesus, but the palm was a sign of um, the nation of Israel. Uh, waving palm branches as Jesus walked by was not only to cool him down or to look cool so we could have children's programs on Palm Sunday. 
Rather, it had something to do with the group identity. It's almost like a national flag. It was, we're going to take all of us and we're going to say our identity is no longer there. Our identity is here. As you wave your palm branch at Jesus and go, Hosanna, save me. It's an, an acknowledgement that your identity is in the kingdom of God. That He is your King. Christ is your head. Your federal leader. God is your Father. Your inheritance is heavenly. Your, blessing or, uh, your blessings um, are real and they're practical and they're spiritual, but they are not what the crowd calls blessings. First, what do you do with Jesus as you enter the kingdom of God? You find your identity, not in your earthly associations, but in your relationship to Him. And then you cry, Hosanna. Maybe this sounds extreme, but look, you are either looking at Jesus and you are saying, you are my only hope, please save me, or eventually you'll start shouting crucify. Because Jesus does not desire to follow you. Rather, you are invited to follow him. We shout Hosanna. You are my only hope. It's not going to be money. It's not going to be power. It's not going to be all these devastating good looks. Because if you just want to declare Jesus innocent, you just want to give verbal agreement to who Jesus is, but then you don't want to follow Jesus. Well, that's never going to work. Eventually, you'll be frustrated. You'll be disappointed. You'll be angry. Christians, where does our help come from? Let's lift our eyes up above the hills. Look upon the one who has made us, who became human so he could be rejected by humanity, so he could save us. Jesus is love. Where else would we look and say, please save us? Hosanna! We're saved. I know you know who Jesus is, Lighthouse, but where are you looking for salvation? Not just eternal salvation, but for hope. To be saved from, from sorrow. To be saved from trouble. Christians who are saved, do you still need to be saved? Are there things in your life, I have been saved, I am saved, I am being saved, I need salvation. Sometimes I need salvation from my own heart. Jesus doesn't want to just be your Savior someday when you die. He desires to save you every day and a lot of days to save you just from yourself. Third, you, say, you cry Hosanna and then you lay down your cloak and I won't spend a whole lot of time with that, but I almost brought an angel's jacket because um, I don't, have, a, I don't like have my varsity jacket or whatever. And, um, but it is how we like uh, define ourselves a little bit, what we wear, and as you climb ladders and, and whatever, there's more, this thing eh, sort of fits. It's been hanging in my office unworn for a very long time. Um, but you know, in, in, um, in the first century, you knew a lot about somebody by, by their cloak by how long it was, by how much authority they had, whether they were rich or poor. There's purple on that thing. It means something. 
So not only do we lay down our national identity, not only do we lay down our palm branches, but also we take our, our identity, our, our sense of self. We say, I'm no longer going to define myself by, you know, blonde, graying, beard, almost 6'2", loves baseball. That's not going to be me anymore. Rather, I'm just going to lay that down at Jesus' feet and say, I find my identity in him and him alone. But there's still the issue of your gavel. What do you do? How do you judge Jesus? What should, what should Herod have done? What should Pilate have done? Don't you think what you do is you turn and hand the gavel to Jesus? You go, I'm not the judge. You are. Search me, Jesus. Know me. Once you become convinced of who Jesus is, you don't be his judge. You be his servant. The King of kings and Lord of lords is before them. They should have just thrown themselves at his feet and cried, Lord, search me, know me. You know, um, you know my favorite passage is in Isaiah 6. As Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up and just goes, woe is me. We are so conditioned to go, woe is you and woe is you and woe is you. We are all experts in what everybody else does wrong. We are all experts in what theologians are good and what theologians are bad. We are all experts in, 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 in judgment. And what it means to really see God, really see Jesus, is to go, I am way out of that game. I'm just going to fall down and go, would you please save me? You think of Zacchaeus just humiliating himself to climb that tree just so he could get a glimpse of Jesus. You think of Matthew standing up from his tax collector's booth so he can follow Jesus. And, and, and we ha that's the only answer once you see who Jesus really is. Give up your gavel. Give it to him. We are conditioned to be the judges. I, I, I pretty much only like watching sports because of mostly attention span problems. But um, I understand there are lots of shows on TV where you are the judge. We are absolutely, it's fine. Vote for the one you like, I don't care. But we are absolutely conditioned to walk into every room and go, I'm the judge. And we can bring that before the scriptures. We can read them and go, mm, what do you think? Instead of going, God, would you search me? Would you show me where I'm in error? I am saved. Please save me. He is love. His burden is light. He is the friend of sinners like us. Let's just be in awe. He is lowly and kind, and He is the only true power in the world. Nobody gets to the Father except through Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Hand Him your gavel. Just give your judgment away. Jesus would have got to the cross if Pilate would have repented. So it's a book that we haven't read. I don't know how that would have worked. Jesus would have gotten to the cross if Herod would have repented. In fact, maybe they would have had to line up a whole bunch of crosses. I don't know. But we have to simply follow his feet, submit. Who Jesus is, number one. Next, what are you doing with him? And the only right answer is submitting to him, is to obeying him, is to worshiping him. 
And if you spend your time submitting to Jesus, this is going to affect how we treat others, of course. We're going to stop asking questions like, is this person good or bad? And we're going to start asking questions like, oh my gosh, a person, how might I reflect God's great love to them? Which is an entirely different question. But it also impacts how I live, my personal morality too. No longer can I justify my actions or, or even asking, can I justify my actions using a Bible verse? But rather it becomes, how can I best serve my king every day? If you are still holding the gavel, then all of life, I'll tell you how you know, because if, if you are still holding the gavel, all of life is probably an exhausting evaluation of everything. Fear and anger are never far off. And we're all trained to do this. It's what we do all the time. But if you've given up on judgment, especially of Jesus, like Pilate should have, like Herod should have, if you find Jesus to be the truth, the life, and the only way, then every drop of your life is worship. That is all you are doing. What should we do? What should we do with Jesus? We should make every action, every interaction, an act of worship. So, let's remember the palm branches and the coats and the gavels, but let's leave this place no longer holding gavels, but rather on mission to fill the world with the worship of the King of kings and Lord of lords.